Hello and welcome to Mavsplained, where every single day of the week, except for the last couple weeks, we're bringing you something about the Dallas Mavericks. We're breaking down a question, event, news, or trend. In today's case, we're going to talk a little bit of Mavs history. Joining me to do so is Mike Frailer. What's up, Mike? Hey, Bobby. Uh, how are you doing tonight? I am good, man. I am good. I know you're buzzing. I don't even need to ask. <laughs> and the reason why I know you're doing well is because we just watched Moody Madness on Fox Sports Southwest. So for the last couple months, uh, FSSW has been playing. Uh, you know, we all remember all the finals games, the year that they, they won the championship against Miami. We got to watch all those playoff games. Uh, and then they've shown some games from this season and some of, you know, the memorable dirt games. But they're kicking it back to the old school this week, showing some classics from the 1988 playoff run where they got all the way to the uh, Western Conference Finals against the Lakers. But in tonight's case, they showed Moody Madness. Now, you're a young Mavs fan. Mike, I think you're in your early 30s. You're about my age. I'm, I'm 29. We're both fairly young. We were not alive when this game was played. And <laughs> so obviously, if you're any younger than us, there's a good chance you've never even seen footage of it until tonight because it's very, very hard to come by uh, 1984 NBA game tape. And so you might never have even heard of this game until tonight or last night. But Moody Madness was the deciding game, game five of the 1984 Western Conference quarterfinal series between the Mavs and the Sonics back then. Of course, the first round was a best of five. And uh, it was tied at 2-2 two to two after four games. They needed to play a game five to decide it. Dallas had the better record in the regular season, so they would play host in game five. But, of course, this was the first time the Mavericks had ever made the playoffs. And so I think the people at Reunion Arena might not have suspected that they would actually have to use the building into uh, late April and early May. And so the Mavs were actually not able to play game five on their own court because it was being occupied – for a tennis tournament and a, a ultimate twist of fate. And so they had to uh, relocate. So they relocated to the nearest NBA sized or thereabouts gym that they could find Moody Coliseum on the campus of SMU. And that was host to one of the most, if not the most iconic nights in uh, Dallas professional basketball history. Um, so Mike, I guess real quick, you know, we were talking about this a little bit beforehand, but uh, like I said, it was my first time watching the game um, before tonight. Had you ever seen the game? What did you heard about the game? I know you've had a lot of uh, players who played in that game and were part of the Mavericks organization uh, throughout the 80s come on to uh, Mavs archives and, and talk with you about it, too. So kind of could you could you help set the table a little bit for what happened that night? Absolutely. Um, yeah. So like you like you alluded to um, the first this was the first time the Mavs were in the playoffs. And so it was an exciting time for for the Mavs franchise, they were only four years removed from being an expansion team. But um, to answer to answer your question, uh, I hadn't seen as much of the game as I saw tonight. I was able to catch the last hour, hour and a half of the the broadcast tonight. And um, obviously, I've talked to, like you mentioned, uh, a lot of guys that were there, former players, um, Dale Ellis, Kurt Nymphius, um, Scott Lloyd was the color commentator on the broadcast. He was a, a podcast guest of mine, a former Mav as well. I think he retired in like 82 or 83. So just missed out on playing in Moody Madness, but was still there on hand. And then he was I hype had on the broadcast too. I got to say he, he was, he gave a great call. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. He, uh, he's a great guy. And then um, I also had uh, Dave Barnett, who was the Mavs radio guy for almost all of the eighties. 
And so he was on hand there as, as well, too. So I've heard from various people that either played or um, were involved in the broadcast of that night. So really a, a crazy time. And, um, you know, it was just it was a kind of a fitting end to an unusual series. Um, I know that it was a five game series, but those five games were played in four different buildings. So it was just a unusual time, something that would never happen in today's NBA. So it was, it was really cool to, to see, to actually see like continuous footage of it rather than an occasional clip. And obviously we'll get into the unusual circumstances that unfolded, but it was a, I, I really enjoyed watching it and I found myself getting kind of, excited and and also uh just um yeah I, I was just it it was fascinating yeah it was really cool man i mean just even more than obviously the game itself is very iconic and and wacky i mean like, we'll we'll talk about some of the stuff that some of the things that transpired but for someone like me and you and i'm sure there are a lot of mavs fans that are our age that have an appreciation of the history of you know appreciation for the history of the organization and at least a general awareness of what happened. I mean, you and I know uh, the playoff runs that they went on in the 80s and what happened in the 90s and all that stuff. But it's, it's kind of different whenever you can actually just watch it happen, watch okay. all of these uh, events unfold in front of you. Kind of makes these like, these almost like myths of basketball players real, you know? <laughs> like Rolando Blackman for me really for his, his entire career exists only in 10 second highlight videos, you know? Um, I've never really seen a Rolando Blackman game or a Derek Harper game or Brad Davis. So to get to see all of these guys, Mark McGuire, of course, as well, play a full game, like a real high stakes game in a wacky environment against a really good team too in Seattle that was just a few years removed from winning a championship. Uh, it was really cool. I don't know. It was just a really, really awesome thing. And right now uh, there's actually a 1988 playoff game against the Nuggets on. And that's pretty cool to watch too. But uh, yeah, it's just kind of, it's, just cool to see it. And it's unfortunate uh, before we get into the game, it's unfortunate that the footage just doesn't really exist anywhere. I mean, there's like no, there's like one or two recordings left of Moody Madness, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, not only because the game was played in a, not an NBA arena. And so there obviously was like not the same sort of hosting capabilities that you would expect of an NBA playoff game. But you know, it's, it's just such a long, this game was almost 40 years ago. I mean, it's, it's, 36 years since and there's there's barely any recordings of old Dirk games let alone games that happened whenever Dirk was like five oh absolutely and um like I mentioned how um, Dave Barnett was the radio guy when I did my episode with him he said that this game was actually on pay-per-view when it aired my Uh, god yeah (laughs) So, so I mean I just I don't think there's very many uh recordings of it and I was actually like maybe even a little skeptical um, that it was going to be on TV tonight because I remember like last year or maybe the year before NBA TV did a Mavs day and Moody Madness was in the lineup. I set my recorder and they ended up putting like a, I don't know, it might've been a 2011 game in there instead. So it was in the lineup and then it ended up not even being on NBA TV. Um, yeah. Well, I, I, I can actually tell you why that. Well, Oh really? Ed- okay. Yes. Um, so you know how on the broadcast on Fox, it was, uh, Mark and, and Derek Harper who called overtime. That was awesome. Yeah. Um, I was going to talk. Yeah. That was cool. Yeah. It, it was very cool. And yeah. I'm happy. That's how it turned out. Cause like, it's, it's always cool to hear. And it was they, a nice surprise. And those yeah. little interstitials of like Roe and Harp and, yeah. and Brad you know, looking back on it, which is awesome. But, um, the audio 
from that overtime just does not exist. It got corrupted somehow. And uh, so I don't even know if I'm supposed to talk about this, but this is a little, uh, a little behind the curtains. It just did not survive over the years. And so that's probably why they didn't play it because like you can't show that game without showing overtime and you don't want to show overtime on mute. So yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. That's just a little, uh, that's a little something, something it's too bad that that happened, but that's also kind of one of like the wacky things that you would expect of something that happened 40 years ago. You know? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, that makes sense. I was curious why it would be like in the lineup and then just not show up. And then this is the first time I'm ever hearing an explanation for it. So that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's, uh, let's set the scene a little bit and walk through this game before we get to, uh, to the pretty memorable finish. Uh, so this was a first round series, like I said, between the Mavs and the Sonics that year, the Mavs finished 43 and 39. Uh, to that point, their best finish in franchise history. They finished fourth place in the Western Conference with 43 wins. <laughs> so you got you got home court at a discount, man. 43 yeah. wins. In fact, they only finished two games behind Utah for the Midwest Division title. And back then, there were only two divisions per conference. And so Dallas was – they had a heck of a season. And they were going up against Seattle, the number five seed, who went 42 and 40. So these teams are pretty – uh, evenly balanced. In fact, Seattle had a, a negative point differential that season and still somehow finished just one game out of home court in the first round. So That's the Western crazy. Conference definitely evolved over the years uh, in, <laughs> yeah. in many ways. Uh, that entire series was very wacky. Uh, the, you had two games played at Reunion Arena, and then you had a, a game played on Seattle's typical home court, and then they played a game at the Kingdom uh, because the Sonics Arena was unavailable. And then, of course, he played game five at Moody uh, Coliseum. Through the first four games, the series was tied. And, in fact, through halftime of game five, the series was tied. And through the fourth quarter of game <laughs> five, the series was tied. Uh, the entire series was decided by one point, which is pretty uh, incredible stuff. So very, very, very balanced back-and-forth series. Uh, the teams alternated wins. You had the Mavs win, Sonics won, Sonics won, Mavs won. And then all of a sudden, the Mavs have a do-or-die at home, which is pretty rad. Um, so uh, the game begins, and the Mavs actually got off to a pretty good start. They led by six early on. They came roaring out of the gates, and, and it looked like, you know, they'd kind of coast to a win. But then Seattle came back, a uh, nice run to end the first quarter, and it was tied at the half, uh, 49-49. And then through the third quarter, it was kind of edging back and forth. It seemed like the game, really, the, the entire game, beyond from about like three minutes, four minutes into the game, until the early fourth quarter, the score was always within two or three or four points. In fact, the Sonics never led by more than three points until I believe the fourth quarter started. Um, they opened up on a run. You had downtown Freddie Brown and Gus Williams and Jack Sigma, three really, really, really good players. Jack Sigma's in the Hall of Fame, of course. Um, they caught fire. And, and this Sonics team, to kind of uh, sort of evaluate the opposition, they won the championship in 1979, and they had lost some of the key contributors to that team. Like Dennis Johnson by then had gone on, and he had joined the Celtics, who would win the championship in 1984. Uh, and they lost some other guys like Paul Silas that were on those team, but they that were on that team. But they still had Gus Williams, Tom Chambers, a young Tom Chambers, mm -hmm. uh, Jack Sigma, um, and downtown Freddie Brown. And then they had Steve Hawes, whose nephew is Spencer. I was yeah. like, man. He doesn't look too much like Spencer Hawes, but they are related, but they're not father-son. Uh, but, yeah, that was, that was a nice little Easter egg to find, too. But uh, contrasting them were the Mavericks, who had Roe Blackman, Mark Aguirre, Jay Vincent, all of these guys very young. And then you had Brad Davis and Pat Cummings, who 
who weren't quite as young. And then you had Dale Ellis, who I believe is a rookie, and Derek Harper was in his first or second season. Yeah, they were rookies uh, so together. Yeah. Oh, rookies together. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so you had just had a very raw green Mavs team. This is their first playoff series as an organization, and obviously many of these players were in their first playoff series as well, going up against a team that had been there and done that, uh, like Jack Sigma, again, future Hall of Famer, going up against this young Mavs front court. So you're thinking, this can be a tough series. Uh, so anyway, you know, Dallas had kind of the, the advantage over the Sonics for most of game five. And then the fourth quarter started and Gus Williams and Fred Brown and Jack Sigma especially just started taking over. I mean, they were they were dominating. And the fourth quarter is really all Seattle up until the final few minutes. The Sonics led by seven points at one point with like four and a half, five minutes to go. And of course, back then, uh, the Mavs were 0 for 2 from three in that game. And so you're down seven with three, four minutes left. I mean, that's like, that's a four possession game. You know, you're not getting, you're not getting many three point plays. Uh, Dallas took 19 free throws the entire game. So uh, you're scoring two points at a time at best. And so you've got to string together a lot of buckets and you've got to get a lot of stops. And uh, Mike, some, some pretty wacky things happened as the Mavs started coming back in the game. First, you just had a lot of activity uh, on the offensive glass. Uh, which ultimately led Jack Sigma to foul out of the game mm-hmm. late in regulation. But even still, through all of that, Seattle led uh, by four or six points, you know, just constantly for these last few minutes. And then we get to, like, the last, like, really, the you know, the home stretch, minute and a half, two minutes left, and that's whenever things really started going off the rails for Seattle. Absolutely, yeah. Um you know, it, it kind of reminded me as I was watching it and I had never seen, like we said before, like this much footage of it. It kind of reminded me of that Mavs Bulls game from 98 when like everything kind of that had to break the Mavs way, like had to happen in order for, mm-hmm. for them to even like remain in, in striking distance. So um, I know the Sonics missed a couple of uh, free throws down the stretch, like Fred Brown missed a big one. He shot 90% that year, missed a huge free throw. Tom Chambers missed one, um, and and just some other things that happened for Seattle. They had um, a a ten second violation back then. It was ten seconds to advance the ball over midcourt, and they couldn't get it. Was... How does it take longer than ten <laughs> yeah. seconds? I mean, my God! Like yeah. I was watching that play develop, and I was like, "You've got to be kidding me!" I mean, but they just couldn't. Yeah, Mavs swarmed them. You know, yeah, they did, and that that was that was really cool. And then um, I think after that that 10 second violation, if I'm not mistaken, that's when um, the Mavs, well, first of all, the Mavs were down by six with less than a minute left. And, you know, you think at that time it, it's all but over, but like I said, some things started happening that turned, turned into the Mavs favor. Um, they, they tried to throw a cross court pass at one point when the Mavs were down by two. And if you watch the footage, you see where, where Roe came from. He was, um, below the foul line and the Sonics were outside the, the three-point line and you know he just read it perfectly tapped the ball ahead got a breakaway dunk to I think actually I think they were down by four at that point that dunk pulled them to within two and then yep. they got another stop um and well and then, so so what happened then after that was that was with about 24 seconds left 22 seconds left something like that uh Roe dunked it Seattle calls timeout and on the ensuing inbounds pass, uh, the Mavs committed a foul. I think it was Aguirre who committed yes, a foul. Yes, yeah. And uh, Seattle had a free throw, like a, you know, a 
kind of a technical sort of it was like a loose ball foul away from the ball foul on an yes, inbound right. pass, and so it's like one shot in the ball, and they missed the free throw, and then they had to call a timeout because they couldn't get the the ball inbounds, and then so this is like their third crack at this inbounds pass. Then they committed a five second violation. That's, Shades of yeah. Scotty Pippen. Yes, yeah. So they commit the five second violation. And then, so then the Mavs get a chance and um, like what you were saying earlier, it it was cool to see like Rolando Blackman, like as a closer, as the Mavs go-to guy for like just a sequence of events. Cause you know, we, we weren't around to, to enjoy it um, when it was actually happening. So it, it was really neat to just watch it unfold and watch him be the go-to guy. And obviously he had that steal, but then he had that top of the key jumper that tied the game with, I think it was like 13 seconds left that hit the rim, hit the backboard, then fell in to tie the game. So it was it was really enjoyable to see him in his element and be uh, be the Mavs go-to guy down the stretch. So I really enjoyed that part. Yeah, it was awesome. And uh, I, I kind of want to uh, give like scouting reports on kind of all these guys, you know, <laughs> because I feel like I learned a lot about these players from watching. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll get to that afterwards. So I want to give you a little bit of time to gather your thoughts too. But uh, – so the, the Mavs tie the game, and uh, Seattle's unable to score. In fact, Danny Vrains, uh, I forget who took the shot. It might have been Gus Williams who took the shot to win the game. Uh, or no, actually, I, it might have even been uh, Freddie Brown. He had, a, a like, a wide-open jump shot to win, and it rimmed out, and Danny Vrains uh, missed the tip-in at the buzzer. That I mean, was like so close. <laughs> point blank. And it just rolled off the rim. I mean, I, I don't know how it did not go in. Uh, his tip-in just rolled off the rim, and so to OT we go. And the Mavs came out of the gates on fire. They scored the first six points of OT. It looked like they were going to, you know, this game was going to be over. And then all of a sudden it was like everything that happened started happening in reverse. It was like the Mavs were the ones that couldn't get out of their own way. They were making silly plays, couldn't get really any good shots. Had a couple, I think even air balls. I mean, just really, really bad possessions. And Seattle started uh, hitting some shots. I think Gus Williams hit a a three-pointer somewhere in there. And uh, all of a sudden, even no Sigma, the Sonics have brought the game to within, uh, at the time it was within, I believe, three points. And the Mavs, you know, the, the Sonics are shooting with, for their season, basically at this point. There's like 10 seconds left or something. And they miss a couple shots. The Mavs come away with the rebound. I think it's uh, Jay Vincent who comes away with the ball, and he's been a great free throw shooter for the entire series. He hadn't missed one to that point in the mm-hmm. series. He gets fouled and goes to the line and misses both. Yeah. He missed both, yeah, which he, gave think, Seattle uh, a chance. Um, it might have been – yeah, I guess it was in overtime, so you heard Fallowell say it. He had made like 30 straight free throws at that point. Yeah, so he goes over two, and Seattle gets the rebound, takes it down to the other end, and scores. And so the Mavs are up. Well, they didn't score right away. Uh, uh, Gus Williams pulled up for three and missed. Uh, of course, Seattle's down three, so they need three points. He missed. They missed the first tip-in, and then they made the second tip-in. So there's one second left, and Dallas leads by one point. And now had Williams made the first three, it would have been your ball shoot to win. But now you just have to get the ball inbounds to win the game. So Dallas calls timeout, advances the ball to half court. And who was the trigger man? Was it Aguirre? It was, was Jay Vincent. It? it was Jay Vincent? Mm-hmm. I, like, I, it might have just been Inception – because I'm sure I've seen the highlight before, but as he was getting ready to inbound it, Tom Chambers, I think, was the was the defender on the inbounds pass. I was thinking, just chunk it off his leg, and the game's <laughs> over. You know, like you don't have to. 
as long as you make contact with somebody, the game will end. There's yeah. no way that Seattle can get a, a, a shot off. And sure enough, Jay Vincent tried to do it. He threw it right at, at Tom Chambers' leg, but Chambers jumped and caught the ball like in his crotch kind of, and, and Seattle was given a timeout. Like before he even landed with the ball, they were given a timeout like immediately. And uh, the Mavs thought they'd won the game. The buzzer sounded. The crowd was going nuts. Dallas leaves the floor, goes into the locker room, and the refs with somehow with no access to instant replay and also with the, the clocks not showing tenths of a second. Like, see, so there was just one second. It could have been 0.1. It could have been 1.9. But mm-hmm. all it said was one second. The referees decided – no, we got to bring the players ba- uh, back on the floor, give Seattle an inbounds <laughs> chance to win the game. It was like shades of USA-Russia in, uh, in the Olympics way back in the day. Seattle gets an inbounds pass, and, uh, and unfor- you know, unfortunately for them, but fortunately for Dallas, they were not able to score. And the game was actually over at that point. But just that, that sequence took about 15 minutes of deliberation and, and trying to figure out what was going on. And I can only imagine how, like, how nutty everybody had to feel in that moment oh yeah for sure and actually um I can provide a little more detail around that only because of the episode I did with Dave Barnett the the Mavs former radio guy so he said that the ref indicated to the scorekeeper um don't start the clock until you see my signal because I guess because of the sound and like they just didn't think they'd be able to hear any sort of whistle so he wanted to give them like kind of like a hand signal to start the clock now. Um, apparently the ref never did that. So I think it was Mike Mathis. So the, the, the scorekeeper never started the clock. So that's why when you saw Jay Vincent inbound to Tom Chambers, the clock never moved because the scorekeeper was w- looking at the ref for a signal that never happened. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, there were, there were clock keeping issues uh, early in the game and kind of throughout the game, but especially early in the game, because all of the equipment that these guys were using was SMU stuff. It wasn't Dallas stuff. The scoreboard was different and everything. And so like you're dropping these statisticians into a new environment too. And so it's just utter chaos, like in every direction. Oh yeah, for sure. And so, um, and then according to things I I read today and just um, the episode, they said there was a 14 minute delay and, I, as I was watching, I mean, obviously the 14 minutes wasn't on the broadcast tonight, but I was thinking about like what like Mavs Twitter would be like if something like that happened today during that 14 minutes. Like that would be insane um, about like what was going on during, 14 minutes ever. <laughs> yeah, during what's essentially a game seven, you know, because it was a, a five game series back in the day. So um, it, I just I can't imagine uh, a, a crazier ending to a to an NBA playoff game. And so. Uh, it's pretty cool that the Mavs were involved in something like that and came out on the winning end. Yeah, for sure. And uh, very unusual, atypical way for a series to end, and obviously in a place that was very strange too. I don't think there's been an NBA game played at Moody since then, and I don't think there was one played there before that either. And so it's kind of that – that's like a standalone moment in time really, uh, which is – it's its pretty cool. And the fact that the game ending was so unique and it was their first playoff series mm-hmm. and for the reason that they had to play it there, like all of these things culminated into like – into just one really sort of special evening. Uh, so much so that I've heard it said over the years that uh, 
you know, only like nine and a half thousand people were there, but like 50,000 people claim that they were there <laughs> uh, because it's like one of those, like, you know, you want to say that you were a part of it, but I believe, uh, I, I don't want to speak for him, but I'm pretty sure that skin actually was there. I think yeah. that he went with his dad. Yeah. He, he told me that, that, that he was there, um, which is pretty neat. I've never known him to lie. Yeah. So. <laughs> and, um, yeah, just a, a few things. So I know that like, Moody held exactly 8,000 seats fewer than Reunion. Um, so there was, and I believe there was like a lottery system or something to determine who was going to get tickets from, from like the season ticket holder um, accounts and all that. So I'm, I can't even imagine trying to coordinate that in this day and age, but uh, it was crazy. Like I, um, and I know, I think I read that I have to go back and look, but they only had like, 36 hours to pull this off to get it from like uh, knowing that there was a, a get going to be a game five and trying to get everything coordinated to, to be able to work at um, at Moody Coliseum. So that's pretty crazy. Well, yeah, dude. I mean, think about it this way. So game four was played in Seattle on April 24th. Game five was played in Dallas on April 26th. Yeah. And so <laughs> it really was like wake up the next morning, fly to Dallas, like maybe practice and then go to bed and then play the game. I mean, <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> that's crazy that that's how that happened. Normally you got like five days off in between games nowadays, but this was just like, no, right back to it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm trying to think of, um, there's a couple things I keep alluding to that Dave Barnett episode, but I would encourage Mavs fans to listen to that on Mavs archives because his memory of, of just that sequence of events and the way he described it is really cool. But he was also talking about how he later found out that at reunion arena, um, uh, Jimmy Connors, who was, might've been the number one professional tennis player in the world at that point or around that time uh, was like asking people in the stands, what the score to the Mavs games were. Cause there was people at reunion listening to games on their little like handheld radios he said at one point, uh, Jimmy sat down in the stands and was listening to the game because he wanted to know what was going on. <laughs> Dude, that's awesome. Yeah, so I thought that was pretty cool to hear. That is awesome. Um, okay, so the Mavs win 105-104. They would go on to the second round uh, where they would ultimately lose to the Lakers. They would play the Lakers, I think, a couple more times in the 80s, maybe just one more time. I know they did play in 86 and then, of course, in 1988 in the Western Conference Finals mm -hmm. as well. So that was the, the first of many meetings with L.A. And then after that, they wouldn't play again until 2011. And so uh, Game 7 of the 1988 Western Conference Finals is still the Lakers' last playoff win against Dallas. Which is pretty funny. <laughs> um, so uh, anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run through the box score real quick and uh, give some thoughts, give some, some hot sports opinions on some of the players that we watched. And if you have any to add, uh, definitely feel free. Sure. To, uh, to chime in as we go. So, so let's start with Seattle. Leading the way was Gus Williams, who at that point was kind of – he was a little later on in his career, but 27 points, 14 assists. That guy was a monster, man. He was, he was so effective in that game. And, and his numbers throughout his entire career were really good, especially, uh, you know, whenever they won the championship and all that stuff. But – Dude, just the, the the pace that he played with, he, he was so fast. He was just a, really getting in the open floor. Was He was giving them such problems doing that. Uh, you know, off Mavs misses, 
you would just like blink and all of a sudden he'd be at the other end of the floor laying it in. He was really good at just pushing the tempo and he pulled up for a couple jump shots and, uh, you know, dumped off the ball to, to open guys whenever he, you know, whenever they were there. Uh, just really like, just really kind of dominated in that game. And he just really seemed like a really smooth electric kind of player. Oh yeah. Um, you know, I know the name, but really no context around it. Um, so watching him basically carve up the Mavs was, was pretty cool. Uh, you know, it was just, uh, I enjoy learning about different players behind, like before my time. So, uh, you know, I, I kind of want to see what else is around, around him on, uh, online, see if there's any highlights. And I do know that just in doing research for this, um, the Sonics won game two in Dallas and Gus Williams hit a three at the buzzer to win that game. So he definitely, uh, probably caused the Mavs fans a lot of headaches in that series. He's a bad man. Yeah. He's a bad man. Um, yeah, no, he was awesome. And then they had, they had Danny Vrains, they had Al Wood, they had Tom Chambers, who I think was just in his second season, maybe his third season. Um, remembered more for his career later in the 80s and in the 90s with Phoenix, but uh, where he averaged, I think, 27 points a game one season with Phoenix. But uh, he was he was very young on this team, playing next to Jack Sigma. Uh, interesting to see Tom Chambers. In fact, I didn't even know that he was on the team for that game, so that was pretty <laughs> cool. But I did know about Jack Sigma. Let me tell you what, man. I'm, I'll be the first person to tell you that post-ups should not happen in the NBA more than they need to. But, oh, my God, it was such a pleasure watching him reverse pivot guys into oblivion. I mean, he, he's so good. The touch that he mm-hmm. had on that jump shot, catching it on the block, up to, up to 15, 18 feet out, and then just spinning on that, on that reverse pivot and then just facing up and, and dropping one right in your face. I mean, it was he was unstoppable. Yeah, he was. And, um, you know, I like it, another guy that I never got to see play, but uh, you hear about, like, signature moves and and that reverse pivot was his move so it was cool just seeing it in a in a game setting and not just a a highlight setting if you know what I mean so I really enjoyed watching him yeah when that you know the whole kind of one knock against it is like well everybody does that move it's not really even that signature but I mean he popularized it and perfected it and also elements of that move um, are in basically every like proficient post-up players arsenal now including Dirk Dirk oh yeah, had that little inside, that little inside pivot, all the time. I mean, he was that. That's how you, that kind of preceded, the one-legged fade because you know ordinarily you pivot over your shoulder, right? So mm-hmm. you're, you're pivoting away from the defender to give yourself room to shoot. But he would, Jack Sigma reversed it so that you know you think you're going one way, but then you're spinning, and as you do this reverse pivot, you're kind of like artificially creating space get a shot off and then if you can add like a, a hip fakes or head fakes or a dribble move with that then you can create space and all of a sudden you're Dirk Nowitzki so it was really cool to see and then also downtown Freddie Brown my god that guy made some big shots uh and that was his last game yes I was just NBA. about to say <laughs> I know it was his last game he was he was awesome he was like the third or fourth best player in that game yeah he uh you know I, and I was surprised to see I didn't know that that was his last game but I went and looked up he was 35 at the time so and had been playing since 71 so he had a really good career all with the Sonics but he was um you know the maybe the I think he had 18 points that game so one of their leading scores their leading score like you said so still a very effective player at the at the end of his career and so um and he knew and they said like in the broadcast that like you know he had already kind of announced his retirement that this was going to be it so um, it's uh, 
you know, it's interesting that his, his last career game after like 13 years in the NBA was in a college stadium. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ironic. Yeah. Ironic. Well, he went out on a high note, man. I mean, the team lost, but he was, he was awesome. Yeah. He, he was, was, yeah, he was really good. Um, he, he bricked a three, maybe in overtime, pretty bad. And even the announcer said, like, you know, usually, I think it might have been, I guess, Harp saying, like, you give him that look, that's usually going to go down. It just, you know, just kind of how it happened. But, uh, you know, he, he was awesome. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay. So moving on to the Mavs, uh, you had Elson Turner and Bill Garnett. They played three minutes combined. So it was, re- it was a pretty tight rotation. Only eight players played. Uh, Harp, of course, played just 16 minutes, 0 for 1 from the field. He had two assists. Uh, pretty clear that he was like a young guard. You know, whenever he was out there, he was usually just feeding it to other guys. Uh, Kurt Nymphius coming off the bench. I know he's your guy, Mike. Uh, 18 <laughs> minutes. He did not score a point, but I got to say, he was like plopped into the game in overtime, literally just for the jump ball. And then he made two of the biggest defensive plays of the game. And like, he he just stayed in the game at that point. Like, they didn't pull him because he was so effective. And like, that is how he... He made his impact on the game. He did not score, but in 18 minutes, he had five boards and two big blocks in overtime. Yeah, he did. Uh, that's another guy I've been lucky enough to have a conversation with, and um, I really enjoyed that episode. But um, as I was watching it, and um, like you said, he, he was put into overtime to essentially win the jump ball, but he stayed in because of how effective he was. It reminded me a lot of Sagana Jop in 2007 against the Spurs. In two, or I'm sorry, yeah. 2000, in Game 7, 2006. So I should say against the Spurs um, about how Jop came in for overtime and uh, had some great rebounds, blocked Tim Duncan, uh, got Duncan into a traveling violation. Just, you know, kind of this unheralded defensive presence um, who really, you know, the the Mavs don't win that game without Jop, and the Mavs wouldn't have won this game without Kurt Nemphius. He didn't have any points. Um, but he was very effective in overtime and down the stretch. Yeah, for sure. And and it's interesting, too, because, you know, Sigma was such a dominant player, but he was shooting a lot of jump shots. But then whenever he fouled out, it was Haas who came in for Seattle, and he was much more kind of active around the basket, uh, like within kind of the restricted area. And so it's kind of interesting that Nymphis, like that shot-blocking presence would really – Sigma kind of renders that like null and void, mm-hmm. but – Oz comes in maybe a little less talented than Sigma and also plays much more on the basket, which kind of allows Nympius to be that shot blocker. So that was, that was kind of interesting to me. Um, Dale Ellis, big game off the bench, 10 points. He's the only substitute for the Mavs that scored. Oh, you're uh, right. Yeah. Which is kind of interesting. Uh, he had 10 points, 5 of 12 shooting in 17 minutes. So he came in and he got his shots up, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. um, it, was, uh, it was cool, I got to say. It was cool to see Brad Davis play. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Harp, like, ultimately sort of took over starting point guard duties and went on to have an incredible career, Um, you know, a very distinguished career. But Brad Davis is kind of like this sort of like not an afterthought because his number is retired. So, like, he's literally not an afterthought. But uh, young Mavs fans just don't have any recollection of him playing because by the time they were old enough to be born, he was either retired or was coming off the bench. But in this game, dude, I mean – you could see the you could see the appeal, man. You could see why fans loved him so much. He was flying around, uh, playing hard, going to the going to the basket, uh, not afraid of collisions on either end of the floor. He would try. He was trying to take charges in this game. He was throwing himself at the basket, trying to draw fouls. 
uh, just played this really energetic brand of basketball, you know, jump in passing lanes, just like super, super high energy tone setting, um, which gave them kind of like, I, I don't know, like almost like an element of toughness out of the backcourt. Oh yeah. Um, again, someone that, you know, able to see in a, in a game setting was, a. Uh, was really cool. Um, yeah, he had 10 points, six assists. Um, I know there was one point, like right when I turned it on to, to watch it tonight, he, he picked one of the Sonics pockets like at half court and just went right in for a layup. So that, that was pretty cool just to watch him play. He played 42 minutes that night. Um, four starters played over 40 minutes. So it, it was really cool just um, seeing him seeing him down the stretch. One thing I did want to um, point out is I thought was interesting. So probably for like the first three to four minutes of the fourth quarter, I think that um, in addition to Brad Davis, the other two guards then were Derek Harper and Dale Ellis, who were two rookies at the time. So I thought it was interesting seeing um, just two rookies play, you know, a good chunk of the fourth quarter in a, in a do or die game. So that was, that was interesting to me. We'll see if uh, we'll see if we get a, a pair of Mavs rookies on the floor this postseason. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll see. Um, then you had, uh, you had Pat Cummings one. And of course, Brad was kind of like the veteran presence on that team too. He was only, let me see, I'm, I'm pulling up his, uh, his little bio here real quick. Uh, he was only 29, but he was the oldest player on the, in fact, he was 28 actually, uh, the day that game was played. And so he's like, he's the veteran, uh, which is really interesting because 28 is like super young. I mean, mm-hmm. Dwight Powell is, I think older than 28 or is 28 right now. And uh, so for Brad to be kind of like the elder statesman in the room uh, really kind of shows just how, at least in terms of age, the Mavs, the Mavs were kind of outmatched in this series, but also just kind of like the new kids on the block in the West in general. Um, so you had Pat Cummings, who had 16 points and seven boards. You had Jay Vincent, who early in his career was putting up monster numbers for the Mavs. He was still productive uh, at this stage of his career. 15 points, 10 boards. Uh, Sam Perkins would come along later and kind of uh, take over – uh, the power forward duties from Jay. But in this game, he had a double-double, really good around the basket. Uh, he, he Very similar to Mark Aguirre in that I think he was only like 6'6 six, six or 6'7. Six, he wasn't a very big guy, um, but just a, a big guy. Like, he wasn't tall, but he was just very stout, mm-hmm. very strong, low center of gravity. There were a couple times where he would make post moves, spin into guys, bounce off guys. He was just more like a bowling ball, right? He just had so much, so much, he played with so much force and so much like, uh, I, I don't know, just like almost like violence, right? He would just like go through people and move them out of the way. Uh, really interesting to see that component of his game. Um, and then we get to the two big guys, Mark Aguirre, Roe Blackman. First, Mark Aguirre. Uh, I've seen a lot of Aguirre highlights just because, I mean, he averaged 29 points a game one season for Dallas, which is still uh, the franchise record for most points per game in the season. In fact, it was during this season. He averaged 29 and a half points uh, per game in 1983-84. In this game, he had 25 points and nine boards. This was the first game start to finish that I've seen Mark Aguirre play. Like I said, I've seen a ton of highlights, mm-hmm. but watching him for an entire game, he just score in a lot of different ways, but he was so good. So good around the rim on offense. Just again, he's not very big. He's like six six, maybe six seven, but he could he could just get his shot off anytime he wanted, no matter where he was. Yeah, he really could. And that's um another guy that, you know, for whatever reason, I mean, obviously one because of my age, but like I just I haven't had a lot of access and just 
to, to see him play any game. So that was cool being uh, watching him play down the stretch, get some big baskets. Um, you know, he, he definitely seemed like the type of guy that the Mavs could just go to when they really needed a bucket. Um, so that, that was cool to see and just something I wish I could see more of. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, kind of an interesting player archetype too, because I mean, he played a lot of small forward for them and even later into the eighties he did. But of course, back in those days, you know, you weren't really spacing the floor. And so, you know, they, the Mavs always had like a traditional center on the floor, a pretty traditional power forward. And then Aguirre, who was a post-up guy. And mm-hmm. so it's just really interesting to see the small forward kind of be like your, your post anchor within the offense is kind of like this, I don't know, it was just sort of a very atypical offense that they played, but it was super effective. But the 80s was full of those guys. I mean, you had Mark Aguirre, later Charles Barkley, of course, uh, Alex English, who's a guy that played for the Mavs that you've had on your show as well. And so <laughs> that was kind of the era of like these sort of small ball, bowling ball, small forward, power forward combo guys, like guard-sized guys that played like power forwards. And it just really sort of like, uh, that was like the thing back then. Oh yeah, no, I agree. Um, watching Aguirre um, just kind of go to work, like especially like there were a couple of times he posted up on the block and did like a little turnaround. And yeah, it, you know, size-wise, it didn't look like he made sense there, but he was really effective. That was just something I noticed when I was watching it tonight. And then you have the man himself, Rolando <laughs> Blackman, uh, who for the well, I guess not for the first season, but up until a guy named Dirt came along. He's your all-time leading scorer in Mavs franchise history. He scored more than 16,000 points for the team. Uh, he's awesome. In this game, he was even more awesome. I mean, he was so fantastic. He had 29 points, eight rebounds, eight assists, shot 65% from the field. He also had two blocks and a steal. He was so freaking good, uh, just really smooth. He had a couple really powerful drives. And yeah. Fact, uh, one time he went left and went up for the dunk with his left hand, one-handed left-hand dunk, which is like you don't ever see people dunk with their weak hand, but he tried it, got fouled, and in fact probably would have made the dunk, but it was a pretty it was a pretty vicious foul, and so it, it ended up rimming out. But, um, I mean, I, I always thought of Roe as – and, again, I've only seen highlights and, you know, confidence, baby confidence and that sort of thing, but I always thought of him as, like, running off screens, curling for little 18, 20-foot jump shots. And he did a lot of that in this game and, you know, kind of facing guys up, dribbling down and just pulling up for the two. But he could really get to the rim, and he was crafty. He could he could finish over you with the finger roll, but he was explosive too. He could go up for dunks. He dunked it a couple times. Really good with his left hand, obviously very good with his right hand, really energetic, very similar to Brad in that he was he was diving on the floor and, and getting in the, in the little tussles for the ball and everything. Uh, just a really high-energy, high-intensity player and extremely talented at, at pretty much every every component of the game. Yeah, he was. I, I really enjoyed watching this game. Um, I, I know that the, 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 uh, the dunk you're talking about that, uh, that he got fouled on with his left hand, I was surprised to see him go with his left hand. It, just, it almost looked like, I don't want to say like, abnormal but something like that it was like what like was that with his left hand that's kind of what i was, was shocking I yeah mean, it was yeah shocking. and if he had gotten that to go down it would have been awesome but uh um and also i mean i just i'd be curious to find out how many backcourt players would shoot uh, 65 percent in a do or die game um, especially with the volume of shots that he took 
Um, that just seems like something that would be extremely rare, but, you know, he pulled it off and, uh, you know, 13 of 20 from the field, like that's, that's incredible at, on, at any game, but let, let alone a, a do or die game for 29 points. So it was really cool watching him play. And I just, I loved um, his steal that brought them out within two with, with less than a minute left. And that, that FS uh, Fox Sports Southwest did that little uh, picture in picture thing with him talking about it. So it was just uh, really cool to see on the broadcast. And I love that they added in his, his feedback for it. And uh, yeah, just kind of, bummed that I didn't get to see him play uh play in real life so but me too man yeah. me too and uh in in six playoff runs with Dallas spanning from that series uh through 1990 he averaged 21.6 points per game and shot 50 percent from the field 49.8 percent from from the field um just a big time player man a big time player three assists three boards a steal uh, just coming up clutch. I mean, he hit a lot of big shots. He, he basically, he had that, uh, of course the dunk, um, on the fast break to bring them within two. And then he hit the jump shot to tie the game with 20 seconds left or 15 seconds left, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he also hit a little pull-up shot from the elbow to get that run started. With yes. About a minute left he kind of like, so really did like a double stretch. pump to, to get yeah. it right. Yeah. It was yeah, a yeah. very tough shot. Yeah. Very tough. Yeah. Um, but, but he kind of – I mean, this is only one game, and, you know, obviously we're – I'm not trying to ham it up for the show or anything, but, like, this game I feel like is a really good representation of – you know, I grew up in a family that obviously has watched the Mavs forever, and so, um, you know, I've heard a lot of – and working for the team now and being around it all the time and, and knowing some of the players. Like, I know Harp, I know Roe. Um, you know, I, I have a really good idea of of who they are and everything. But this game is, I think, a really good representation of what the 80s era Mavericks were about, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had Brad Davis just flying all over the place. He had a lot of young talent. I mean, again, in this game, there was no Sam Perkins. There was no Detlef Shrimp. There was no Roy Tarpley. These guys hadn't come into the NBA yet. The Mavericks were still forming. Their, their young nucleus was in place, but they still had a lot more development and a lot more talent to add. Um, but you could already see it. Uh, just so much talent, uh, Rowe and Aguirre and Harp. And I mean, they just had a, a lot of young, talented athletes that were very skilled, very talented, um, could score in a variety of ways, brought the intensity on both ends of the floor, played an exciting style, uh, really like crowd pleasing basketball. Uh, Dick Motto was really intense in this game. He was, <laughs> he was pretty pissed off about, about a few different things that happened. Uh, just all in all, it was just a really, I don't know. It was just a, I feel like it's a really good portrait of Mavericks basketball during that period. I, I agree. Um, it, the environment seemed like something that any Mavs fan would would love to be a part of. Um, I love just how like enthusiastic the players were and the fans and everything. And one thing that I like seeing, um, just to kind of speak about the environment of that night is like with how intense that it was, everyone uh, in the crowd was just there in the moment. Obviously like they didn't have smartphones like we do now, but they were all just like watching it with their eyes. And that was something I thought was really cool as I was watching it. Cause if you see any big moment now in any NBA game, like even the fans that pay hundreds or thousands of dollars for their seats, they're pulling out their phone to film it and watching it on the little screen instead of just, experiencing it and that's what everyone got to do that night at uh, at uh, moody coliseum so i just i really enjoyed watching that and I, that's something i was paying attention to was just how passionate and enthusiastic the fans were it was great 
dude, you know, I didn't even, I didn't even think about that, but now I like, it totally makes sense that, that I think added to the experience because everybody was, everybody was locked in, yeah. you know? Yeah. And like, it's like, you could, uh, you know, I know that there's somebody listening to this right now. that's like, I go to Mavs games and I've recorded stuff before and I love cheering on my team and I'm a big fan and everything. And that's great. But like, it, you're so much you can be so much noisier as a fan if you're not holding your phone with one or both hands because then you could clap and then also if you're not like focused on recording because then you could just like scream your head off and mm-hmm. I don't know there's just something like the the only time really you know I've gone to Mavs games as a fan before but uh you know it's always kind of like in a semi-reserved way because of my family situation all that stuff but really like the the highest profile sporting event that I've ever been able to go to in my life um, was the uh, FA Cup final in England in 2000 and 2016. Mm-hmm. It was Crystal Palace versus Man United. And uh, I'm friends with a, a few people that live in, uh, in South London that are big Palace fans. And uh, so I was going to go over there and I, th- we ended up, they ended up having an extra ticket and I was able to go with them, which was like the luckiest thing ever. And I'm, it was, the FA Cup final is like the Super Bowl in England, but it's on steroids. Like literally everybody in the world is talking about this game. Um, anyway, it's in London at a stadium that has 110,000 people or whatever. Um, I'm an American with an American data plan. So I have no internet on my phone. So like my phone is worthless. And so the entire game, instead of being on my phone, I'm watching the game. And it was just like a totally, it was a totally different experience. Not mm-hmm. being like bombarded with, internet and technology and what are my friends saying about this on Twitter right now? And, Oh yeah, my, my, whatever, my girlfriend just texted me. You're like, Oh, here's this annoying picture that someone just posted on Instagram. I'm going to go like make fun of them with my friends or something like <laughs> to not be thinking about any of that stuff and just like be totally focused on the game. It was like a, it was like being in another universe or something. I don't know. It was very, it was very surreal. And uh, so that's, it, it was yeah. Now that you mentioned that, it is very awesome that there were ten thousand people, ish, in one building that were not distracted by anything else yeah. other than they were just focused on what was happening. Yeah, that's just something that that caught my eye, yeah. and uh, it just it definitely added it adds to the experience. It doesn't take away from it. So I, I thought that was really cool. Yeah, for sure. So uh, if you ever go to a Mavs game, just put your put your, put your phone away. Can, can we say that? that's probably fine to say i recommend having put my phone away at big sporting events before i recommend doing the same it it definitely adds to the fun if you're not distracted um man well that that was that was was, this was fun man this yeah yeah it was great there anything else any other anecdotes or 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 Um, spicy opinions that you want to fire off before uh before we wrap things up so the only other thing that I found that I, I just love little facts like this. Um, so the Mavs won game four uh, in Seattle to, to avoid elimination. Um, and then, so that was obviously in 1984. The last time that they won in Seattle um, was 10 games. They had been on a 10 game losing streak in Seattle before that. And the last time that they won was in either October or November of 1980, but it was the, the Mavs first road win ever. So I thought that was interesting that uh, from their first road win ever, they didn't win again until game four of the 84 uh, 
84 series. So that's just something I uncovered today while I was doing some research. Sonics just beat them <laughs> down in Seattle every single time. Yeah, the Sonics also oh, won game. four out of five matchups with the Mavs that season. So, you know, they going in, I think a lot of people expected Seattle to win. It's very kind of like – it's very reminiscent of Mavs Jazz in 2001. Mm-hmm. You had this young upstart Mavs team that had, you know, like one or two guys that were in their 20s and everybody else was basically a teenager – and uh, going up against this established veteran group of guys, Malone and Stockton and all those guys. And the Mavs just somehow managed to beat them. Now, Dallas won that game on the road, whereas the Mavs won this one at home. But, still, I mean, it's kind of the same thing, like young team on the rise beating this kind of this the, you know, the old guard uh, in surprising fashion. And I'm sure Utah had Dallas's number for the – I mean, at that point, honestly, probably like almost 15 years. <laughs> yeah, um, probably. Yeah. But, uh, but, yeah, I mean, sometimes, I don't know, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction, and, and sometimes uh, upsets do happen in sports. And so as we prepare to, uh, to take on the NBA here in about a month or so, the Mavs will almost surely be the underdog, again, no matter who they're facing in the first round. And so it's just something to keep in mind. Crazy things happen the first time a generation of Mavericks make the playoffs. So be on, be on watch Kawhi. All right. How about, how about that? Paul George, <laughs> Montrez, Pat Bev, Lou Will, all those guys. Just watch, just watch out. Watch out. <laughs> yeah. We're, due, right, we're due for another, for some good stuff. So hopefully we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Just hopefully it, well, I guess it won't be moody madness. It'll be like Disney sports. Yeah. That's a good name for it. Literary name for it. Yeah. But, uh, all right, Mike. Thank you for joining me, man. This is this was really fun. Um, and thank you at home for listening or wherever you are consuming this podcast. If you like this podcast, go ahead and subscribe. Leave a leave a review. Leave a, a nice review. At least four stars would be great. I'm not going to be choosy and say you have to leave five, but four would be all right <laughs> as well. Uh, but definitely subscribe. Share it with your friends. Uh, share it if if you're maybe you're, maybe your parents were at the game. Maybe you were at the game. We'd love to hear about it. Uh, yeah. Mike and I are, are big history buffs. So uh, he has forgotten Mavs on Twitter and IG. I am Bobby Corella on both of those places as well. So definitely feel free to share your memories with us, share stories from that game. If you have any photos or like any anything from that time, that would be awesome. Because um, this is one of the most momentous nights in Mavs history. So it's, it's really cool to go back and relive stuff like this. And uh, yeah, thank you for following along. This is Mavs Plane. He is Mike. I am Bobby. And we will see you tomorrow.